In God's providence, we are still not in the book of Ecclesiastes this week. He saw fit to point us directly to Christ again this week. We want to hear from the words of Christ. One of my favorite books in the New Testament. We're back in the Gospel of Luke. The Lord wanted us to hear this message as a church. It's important that we do remember Christ. It's important that we remember what He did for us. And we want to hear His words. We want to hear what He has to say about sin and forgiveness. And we want to hear about how we should love Him all the more. This is an important, vital aspect of Christianity. I've entitled the message, More Love to Christ. How much do we love Christ? Not just in the good times, but in the bad times, and the difficult times, and the sinful times. How much do we love Jesus Christ? If you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, starting in verse 36. And I want us to look at 36 through 50 here. And it's really one of my favorite teachings and parables of Jesus. It's unique to Luke. Let me read the passage to you, Luke 7, starting in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him, At his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know and what sort, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The question we need to ask is, How do we view our sin in relation to the Lord Jesus? How do you think about your own sin in relation to Jesus Christ and his gospel? Do you even acknowledge you're a sinner in need of grace? Do you even admit that truth? And if you're a believer here today, do you really understand how many sins Christ has forgiven you for? Do you think it was some small sin? You stole that piece of chewing gum as a kid? You ever stop and think about all the sins that you have committed? 
What is your response to such forgiveness? If Christ has forgiven you of all those sins, if you've trusted in him, in other words, what's your response? How do you respond to him? And the response should be love. Love for him. Every true Christian must have a great love for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's essential. It's a non-negotiable. As I said last week, he's not something we add to our life. He's not something that we just make a little room for. He's our everything. And we show our love towards him because of who he is and what he's done. Love is a response to forgiveness. It's a right response. And that's the message we see here in the text today. The sinner who has been forgiven much responds with much love towards Christ. So we see here in the text that Jesus has given us through Luke's writing three characteristics of a sinner saved by Christ. You could list more than these three, but these are the three that Jesus gives here. First of all, the sinner is humbled by Christ. He shows us the sinner humbled by Christ. And we see that in these first few verses. He's having this dinner with one of the Pharisees. The Pharisee asked Jesus to come. This doesn't mean the Pharisee was necessarily a follower of Jesus. In fact, I think in the text you get the idea that he's not. But in those days, a Pharisee kept the people under bondage by trying to apply the law on them with a very heavy yoke. And they were going around to the common people saying, here's what you should do. And if you don't do that, you need to pay these penalties, do these sacrifices, do these things. And so one of them asked Jesus to come to dinner. That's what you did when a teacher came through town. You're a respected Pharisee. You would ask this rabbi, this teacher to come to dinner. And it says that Jesus entered into the Pharisee's house. Now we learn later that the Pharisee is named Simon. This is the only place this man is mentioned. There is another Simon in the New Testament called Simon the leper. He's found in Matthew and in Mark. But this is not Simon the leper. This is Simon the Pharisee, the only place he's mentioned here in the Gospel of Luke. He's not Simon the leper. Simon the leper takes place in Bethany much later in Jesus' ministry where he goes to Simon the leper's house. This is Simon the Pharisee, and he goes into his house here in Galilee. This is also not Simon Peter the apostle. There are many people named Simon in the Bible. This is a separate man than the apostle Simon Peter. For a Pharisee, though, to ask Jesus to dinner was a big step. It might sound strange, but Jesus was causing waves. He was disrupting what people thought religion was. He was disrupting their view of God and their view of the Word. And the Pharisees were a close-knit group, especially in Galilee. They had things under their grasp, under their thumb. They controlled the spiritual environment of Galilee. If you got out of line, those were the guys that were going to show up at your house telling you what you should do. In fact, in chapter 5 of Luke, they say about Jesus, who is this man that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're saying that Jesus is a blasphemer. And they increase their attacks on him. And so this Pharisee here must have been curious. He must have been skeptical. He must have wanted to see and have his friends hear what Jesus had to say. Is this man, Jesus, really a prophet? Is he really sent from God? Can he really do miracles? Let's find out, he says. Let's have him come to dinner. Now, to recline at dinner, and this is important for what we see coming up in the text, to recline at dinner means that you lay on your side 
and you dip and eat from a table that's really low to the ground. And you would have cushions and pillows to help you with that. So all their heads would be inward toward the table and their feet going out and a sort of a, a circle or rectangular shape. And now we're introduced to the next person, the one that's going to be humbled here. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, if you just read fast, you'll think, well, we're all sinners. What's the point? The Pharisee's a sinner. Why does he call her a sinner? Well, there's four groups of people, four classes of people mentioned in the gospel accounts. You've got the rich priestly class. These are the people in control of Jerusalem. They don't really show up in the gospel accounts until Jesus and the disciples go to Jerusalem. Sometimes they send a few spies out, but for the most part, they control the south. They control Jerusalem. They're wealthy and they're from the priestly class, often Sadducees. Then the Pharisees, which I've already mentioned, the Pharisees control more of the spiritual environment in the north. Then there's just the common people, the people who work, the farmers, the workers, the poor. And they sinned, but they weren't referred to as sinners. Because when they sinned, the Pharisees were there to tell them what they needed to do to work off that sin. The last group is the worst of them all in people's minds back then, the tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors betrayed their own people by collecting taxes from the Israelites, from the nation, from the Jews, for Rome. And then sinners were the sexually immoral. These were the prostitutes. These were the adulterers. So this woman is one of those two, either a prostitute or something more likely an adulterer. And look what happens when she hears about Jesus. She hears he's having dinner at Simon's house, that he's reclining. Dinner has been going on for some time. She knows where the house is, and she learns about it. And once she heard, she wasted no time and went straight to him. She didn't waste time. None of this thing that people say today, I'll wait till later in life to come to Jesus. I'll get right with God later on my deathbed. Maybe I'll have a few minutes before I die. But it's more convenient when I've had my fun in life. She didn't say, I want to sin some more and then I'll get right with God. No, she knew the measure of her sin. She knew the measure of her sin. Not many people think this is Mary Magdalene. It's not Mary Magdalene. That started somewhere back in the Catholic Church. A pope said that this was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is mentioned in chapter 8, the next chapter, for the very first time in Luke. So it makes no sense that he would put her here, not mention her by name, then mention her in chapter 8 when she first meets Jesus. Mary Magdalene had demons that were cast out. This woman is an adulterer or a prostitute. Now the identity of her will only be known to us in heaven, but look what a testimony she leaves us. Look at her actions in this text. She hears about Jesus, and what does she do? She brought with her an alabaster vial of perfume. Now, alabaster is very expensive. It's a fine-grained, translucent form of gypsum made into a vase. And it would hold perfume. It would hold ointment. And it was a one-time use. You would break the tip so you could pour it out, and that was it. It wouldn't last after that because it would go bad. The flies would get in it, gnats, and so on. Very expensive oil here. And the contents could only be used once. So you get the idea that she's had this for some time, that she's had somewhere gotten the money to buy this, an expensive accessory that women of ancient times had. And 
the reason Luke mentions it here is because he's letting us know what she has in mind. She hasn't even got there yet, and it says she's taking this with her. So the ancient reader would think she's going to go and anoint his head. That's what people did in ancient times with oil. You either used it for cooking, you used it to put on your skin, or occasionally to anoint somebody to say this person is special. And an honored guest would come into the home. Sometimes they would get oil on their head to say, this is the honored guest. Now, I want you to see how this woman comes to the point of humbling herself before Christ. Look at her love here. There's, there's four ways that the text tells us here that she shows her love for Jesus. It says in verse 38 that she's standing behind him at his feet. So we don't even know how she gets in. There was probably other women in the room. They, they wouldn't be the ones around the table, though. The men would be. And she comes up to his feet. She doesn't say anything. His feet would have been pointing away, and she came up behind him. He doesn't really see her. And it says, first of all, that she was weeping. Weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. The word for weeping here is a very intensified word in Greek. It means to cry out loud. Not a quiet weeping, but a loud weeping. And so much so that her tears were falling on his feet. And it's going to say that the tears wash away the dirt on his feet. And literally this word means to cry out with a loud voice like they would at funerals often when they were weeping over a death of a loved one. Why is she crying? Well, think about it. Consider all the sins in your life and you will understand why she's crying. All the sinful acts you've done. All the sinful desires that you've done. From the earliest memory you've had until now. All those desires that you pursued before you were saved. Or if you were saved at a young age, think of what would have happened. An ocean of sins, really, that would have been dumped on you had you not been saved throughout your life. What would have happened? This is why she cried. She thought of all the sins that she had credited to her account. All the ways that she had used her body and her soul to serve the devil. All the ways that she led other people into sin. And the dam just broke for her. Her tears came out. They wet his feet. And the word to wet his feet means to send rain down. It's used in other passages to describe rain as it just floods from the cloud to the ground. Her tears were running down on his feet. And the second one here, the second reason we see her love right here is that she kept wiping them, it says, with the hair of her head. Now, even today, it's not enjoyable to get down next to somebody's feet. But in those days, they didn't have socks. They didn't have showers, baths. They had sandals and dust and rarely took a bath. Jesus has a human body, of course. He's the perfect God-man. And people's feet back then wouldn't have smelled great. It wouldn't have been clean. That's why they put the feet away from the table when they're eating. And she's bowing down, and her tears are falling on his feet. This is something that a slave would have done if they were going to clean somebody's feet. It's not something that anybody else would do. It's a sign here of the woman's deep humility. Look how she's humbling herself. Have you ever bowed down and washed somebody's feet with your hair? 
She loves Jesus. We don't even know yet what's happened in her life, and we could tell she loves Jesus. You don't have to know somebody's testimony to see their love for Jesus. Look at this love here. And she didn't just wipe the dirt, but the the verb tense here is she kept wiping his feet. She continued wiping his feet. Some translations say began, but I, I take it more as a continuous action here. Crying, weeping, wiping continuously until they were clean. Then, thirdly, is that she kissed his feet. You see these verbs coming here? There's three so far. She's kissing his feet. Now, that's not a custom of the day. That's not a custom today either. And it certainly would have been inappropriate in the Pharisees' mind for that to happen. She doesn't care. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks. She is going to worship and humble herself before the Lord. She's not concerned. She's not concerned about what the whole room of people think about her. She's bowing down to her king. And there's no other posture for this woman to have in front of the mighty and awesome Lord. Where should we be when we come to Christ? Where should we continue to be when we come to Christ? We certainly can't think we're above him. We're not equal to Jesus. We are below him. We are humbled at his feet. And then the fourth verb here, anointing them with the perfume. Look at her love. She stands at his feet crying, weeping, raining down tears. She kept wiping continuously. Then when they were clean, she was kissing his feet and then now anointing them with that expensive perfume. She'd been so humble. And she probably went with the idea to anoint his head, but she doesn't even want to interrupt the meal. She's thinking, Lord, I'm so lowly, I don't even want to interrupt. I don't deserve for you to stop and talk to me. I'm just going to clean your feet and pour this oil, very, very expensive perfume on the feet. Now, the idea here is that these actions were continuing for a while. This isn't an immediate thing. A few seconds, it's done. She continues to do this as they're eating. And how the Pharisees must have stood watching in disbelief. You can imagine that they're looking here and thinking, what is going on? They're speechless. They can't even say anything until this event is over. And we learn of their self-righteousness, their, the thoughts that they're having in their heart. It says, now the Pharisees who had invited him saw this. You see, when you humble yourself before Christ, there's going to be Pharisees. There always is, even as a believer. But when you sin and you repent and you confess your sin, watch out for the Pharisees. They're around. They'll be ready. They'll be ready to point at you. And they said, if this man were a prophet, if he was really something, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. That she's a sinner. Now they're making an authoritative announcement here. This isn't a private conversation with Jesus. Notice they're talking about him in the third person. This is an announcement to the whole house of people, maybe even some people outside in the courtyard. There's a sinner who's touching Jesus' feet, and he claims to be a prophet? Their idea is once a wicked sinner, always a wicked sinner. The common person could earn back their grace with God, they taught. But this was a mortal sin, what she had done. She's not getting into heaven no matter what. This is a sinner. And no man of God, they're saying, would allow such a woman to touch him. Jesus must not be a prophet then. Or he would know who exactly she was. 
But just look at her humility. She doesn't care. She goes on anointing his feet. She goes on cleaning his feet. She came to the foot of the cross, we might say. The cross hadn't come yet. But now, don't we come to the foot of the cross? Don't we come to Jesus' feet and bow down? Don't we come and worship him there for what he did and who he is? We've got to humble ourselves. Not just when we come to the faith, but continuously. Take heed, the Bible says, lest you fall. You think you're so strong, you think you can stand, but just humble yourself before Christ. The second characteristic here that he mentions is that the sinner is forgiven by Christ. Look at the sinner forgiven by Christ, starting in verse 40. And we've got to be forgiven of our sins. There's no hope unless we're forgiven. You think you can earn back God's grace? Every day you sin multiple times, and the account gets longer and longer and longer. It would take a whole corporation of CPAs to track all your sins on a record. And the minute you try to even pay back one, what's happened? You, you sin by doing that because you can't even do that. You know that. And all the other sins just keep mounting up every day. You have to be forgiven. The slate has to be wiped clean or there is no hope. There's no hope of forgiveness. And don't be prideful and say, I've, I've been saved. So it's done. Once saved, always saved. I'll just go sin as much as I want. That's not what she does. Look at verse 40. Jesus answered to Simon, because he's probably the one who made the announcement. Simon, I have something to say to you. Again, this is Simon the Pharisee, not Simon Peter. And what does he say? Look at this pride. Say it. Say it, teacher. Come out with it. I can take it. I'm a big boy. I can take it, Jesus. What do you got to teach me today? Go ahead. Just just say it to me. Well, he doesn't challenge the man directly. He tells a parable. He tells a story. A moneylender has two people that owe him money, two debtors. This is in verse 41. It's 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, a moneylender is a one-person bank in those days. It's a loan shark. When you run out of money, you can't pay your taxes, you can't pay the bills, you go borrow some money. And if you don't pay this guy back, this moneylender, you're going to debtor's prison. Or you're going to have to sell everything you own to pay the debt off. Or sell one of your family members into slavery to pay the debt. Now, a denarius is one day's worth of wages. So one guy here owes about a month and a half worth of wages. So think about how much you make. Multiply it times a month and a half. The other guy owes two years worth of wages. So a big difference, a big difference. They both owe this money lender money. Jesus says when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Graciously. The Greek word here is charizomai. We get our English word charis from it. Some people name their daughter charis. That comes from the word for grace in Greek. It literally means that this money lender graced them. He graced them by canceling out their debt. It's gone. They don't owe anything anymore. Teaching us that that's what God does through Christ. He's hinting at the fact that through Christ, we have all of our debts completely, totally forgiven. All of our sins. That's divine grace. You can't figure that out through accounting books. That is God's grace. Go to 
Colossians chapter 2. Go forward in your Bible here. And I want you to see where this develops after the cross. And Paul begins to explain what happened at the cross. So Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. And we see this great passage here about the cancellation of debt. It tells us what happened when we were saved. You don't learn all of this immediately when you're saved. You have to study the Bible to learn more and more about what happened. When you were dead in your transgressions, you were dead. You were a skeleton lying at the bottom of the ocean with a sunken ship on top of you. You couldn't get up and live if you wanted to. You couldn't pull yourself up to the top of the water and walk on land. You're dead. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning you're not even of the nation Israel, there were no promises in the Old Testament that you could claim and say, I deserve that. He made you alive together with him. You're you're buried at the bottom of the ocean. You're completely dead in your sin. And suddenly, who did it? He, God, made you alive. He regenerates. He brings you to life. The skeleton now has flesh and bones and everything he needs. And he's walking on the land. And he does that through Christ, with Christ, in Christ. Isn't that amazing? He made you alive together with him. And here's how it happened. Here's the transaction that occurred. Having forgiven us all of our transgressions. It's gone. It's wiped away. Just like we're going to learn about this woman here. He's telling the parable, though, to set it up. And look look what else Paul says here. Having canceled out the certificate of debt. Now he's using monetary language here. We owed a debt. It was written, in a sense, on a certificate. We couldn't pay it. We deserved eternal punishment. And it's canceled. It's ripped up. It's thrown away. It was decrees that were against us. God's law was against us. We could do nothing about it. God's law was against us. We had this long rap sheet of all the things we've done, and he canceled it. If you're in Christ, this only applies to those in Christ. You can't claim this if you aren't trusting in Christ, aren't following Christ. But if you are, it's gone. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He's nailed your sins to the cross. When he died on the cross, if you're a believer in him, he died for your sins. They're gone. They're nailed to the cross. They're completely canceled out. That's the idea he's coming with in this parable, that he's teaching the Pharisees here. And Jesus says, so which of them love him more? Which of these debtors will love the moneylender more? And it's so obvious, a child could figure it out. So Simon says, I suppose, he's very cautious. He knows that something else is about to come. If you've been around Jesus' teaching, you know there's something coming right after this. I suppose, the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you've judged correctly. That's right. It's the one who's been forgiven more. And Jesus is implying here that this woman has been forgiven much. Already she's been forgiven. Now, we haven't even seen that yet in the text. She comes and shows all this love to Christ. But the question is, why? As you read the text, you ought to be asking, why is she doing this? Jesus is not popular like we might think he was. 
he was hated by most of the world. The Pharisees hated him. The Sadducees hated him. The Herodians hated him. But he was loved by people who were sinners because now they could get forgiveness. Now truly they could receive forgiveness. And so he's implying here that she's been forgiven, that her debt has been canceled. Let's look now at the third one. And this is really the point that he's leading to here in this passage. The third characteristic here is that it shows us the sinner loves Christ. The sinner shows their love to Christ. Now, if you're looking at these, some of you like grammar and English, and you're saying, those verb tenses don't match. You're looking and saying, Pastor, you've got to match your verb tenses. Humbled is in the past. Forgiven is in the past. And shows love is present. Well, that's what the text says. I'm going with the text on this one. All my preaching professors can fail me. That's what it says. The humbling has already been done. She really humbled herself before she even came. For her to show up at that house was a humbling experience. You think she wants to be around those people? It's not a big town. It's not like millions of people live in these villages. They know who she is. They know what she's done. And she had humbled herself to the point where she didn't care. She was going to do this for Jesus' sake. She's also already been forgiven. He's about to tell us that. He's already hinted at it. And as a response to those two, she shows her love to Christ. She loves in the present tense, and it continues. In other words, her love is ongoing. It's not once and done. She didn't say, thank you, Jesus. Let me pay you back with this respect. I'm gone back to my old life. She didn't get saved and then love Jesus for a moment. She continuously showed him love. Verse 44, he now turns around from the Pharisee, Simon, and he looks at her. He speaks to her. Do you see this woman? So he's speaking to Simon still, but he's looking at her. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, Simon. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Oh, that we would do that. That we would cry over our sin and humble ourselves before Jesus. That we would be willing to do that at the feet of Christ. That we would know his forgiveness and love him all the more because of it. You know, Christianity is a joke in a lot of places. It's a joke with a lot of people who say they're Christians. They think it's about listening to Caleb, saying a few Bible verses for good luck. This is serious here. This woman has a great sin debt, and she is weeping. And she doesn't care what they think. She's been forgiven. And he says, you didn't do any of that for me, Simon. That's common courtesy, in other words, to have the slave wash the visitor's feet, to put oil on his head, to freshen him up before the meal. He did none of that. In other words, he was disrespectful towards Jesus to begin with. And look at what she's done. And he says, you gave me no kiss. That's a kiss of greeting, very common between men in the Middle East. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. She's not stopped. In other words, when he's talking, she's still kissing his feet perfume, and continues to kiss his feet. What a genuine response to the forgiveness that God has granted her. And he says, you didn't anoint my head with 
the common olive oil. The word there is common olive oil. But she anointed my feet with perfumed oil, the very most expensive kind. You think, Simon, that you're somehow more religious than her? That you're more holy? That you're somehow better than her? Look at what she's done. The point is, look at how much she loves Jesus. And here's what he says, for this reason. I say to you, Simon, and everybody listening, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. He doesn't say sin is no big deal. He doesn't forget to mention her sin. He mentions it. He even says that they're many, that they're great, because he knows everyone's heart, and he knows the sins that you've committed. And he says her sins are great. But she has been forgiven. Jesus knew what was in Simon's heart. She, that woman knew what was in her heart. Many, many sins that she'd committed. And Jesus knew it too. But Simon didn't know. He acted like he didn't even sin. But Jesus knew. He knew everything. And he knew her past. And he knew every sin. Because he's God. Jesus knows your sins right now. You might think you can hide them, but you can't. He knows them. And he says her sins were many. He'd never even seen her before this time, but he knew because he is God. And it says that she's forgiven. This is the Greek word, aphiomi. Aphiomi means forgiveness. It means to release. It means that on the part of the creditor or offended party that is expected to pay back their debt, all that's been canceled. That's what forgiveness means. It's a, it's a transaction. And if we dig a little deeper, this is in the perfect Greek tense. And you might say, I don't care about the perfect tense, but you'll care about this one because it means she's already been forgiven in the past and it has continuing results. Meaning, she was forgiven before she even showed up because she had repented and humbled herself and trusted in this Messiah that she'd heard about who now came to town. Perfect tense. It's very clear here that this didn't happen at the event. The perfect tense means it's back in the past somewhere and the results we're still seeing with her loving Jesus. And it's passive, which means she didn't forgive herself. There's a lot of talk today about forgiving yourself. The Bible doesn't talk like that. She didn't forgive herself. You can't forgive yourself. Only God can forgive. You can put the sins away out of your mind. You can go on with your life. But it's only God who can cancel the debt. It's only God who can forgive. That's it. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, the Pope a few years ago, one of the popes, said that priests can forgive women who have committed the sin of abortion. They don't have that ability. Only God forgives. And he only does it through Christ. So God's the unmentioned character, really, the father here in the story. He's the one who actively initiates salvation in her case, and he's changed her heart so that she could believe, so that she would be forgiven. Well, if that's not enough grammar for you, it's not only perfect, it's not only passive, but it's in the third person plural. There's a lot built in this one verb here about forgiveness. It's plural because her sins are plural. They're many. All of her sins have been forgiven. All of them. Not just one. 
not just a major sin she committed, but all of them. Every single one she's ever committed has been forgiven. Again, how many sins have you committed in your lifetime? Add them up. You don't even know all the sins you've committed because there's a sin of omission, which is what you should have done, but you didn't do. And sometimes you don't even know that. It's what God expects you to do, but you didn't do it because you forgot. How many times did you transgress against the holy God before you were saved? Our sins, which are many, have been forgiven. If you're a Christian, our sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that? Well, he tells us, for she loved much. She loved much. Now, if you see this, you might think, well, her sins are forgiven because she loved much. It's not what he's saying. He doesn't use the word because. Sometimes prepositions here in the sentence are important. Which came first, the forgiveness or the love? Now, it's obvious we have to have a faith in Jesus Christ. But the actions that she's taken come after her forgiveness. It's clear from the parable above that the one who is forgiven much loves much. The reason she loves him so much is because she understands how much of a sinner she was and that she's forgiven. You know, the world today doesn't think they're sinful at all. People don't even think they're a sinner. She understood. Now, everyone knows they're a sinner deep down. Deep down, you know that there's guilt there. But people sear their conscience. They try to cover it up. The love here, though, is not the cause of forgiveness. But it's the proof of it. It's the fruit of it. She didn't say, God, I love the Messiah. Therefore, you better give me forgiveness. She was forgiven and she showed it through the love towards Jesus. The Apostle John, he will, he will write later, we love because he first loved us. We couldn't love God until he first loved us. And so Jesus is saying here, Simon, you think this woman is a sinner. You think she's beyond salvation, but you don't understand that her sins have been forgiven and she's only here to show me love. Something you couldn't do, Simon. Something you couldn't do, Pharisee. You've never done it, but she did. She didn't just say she loved Jesus. We don't even hear her talk, do we? We don't even hear her talk. Her actions clearly show her heart towards Christ. It's been said by the old Puritans that for every one look at ourselves, we should take ten looks at Christ. Every time you think of your own sin, you should look ten times more at who Christ is and what he's done. Her love was proof that forgiveness had already been granted by God through faith in Jesus. In fact, one of those old Puritans said about this passage, the more we express our sorrow for sin and our love to Christ, the clearer evidence we have of the forgiveness of our sins. For it is by the experience of a work of grace wrought in us that we obtain the assurance of an act of grace wrought for us. In other words, when you experience and live out your life as a Christian and know that something's been done inside you, then you want to do things for Christ. 
And then you understand more of what Christ has done, and it continues and continues. This is what it means to live a changed life after receiving a new heart. And Jesus goes on, but he who's forgiven little loves little. He's putting up a comparison here, and you can't just be forgiven little, so it's, it's hypothetical, because all who are saved are forgiven much. Is there a person that's saved that's been forgiven little? No, they've all been forgiven much. It's hypothetical. He's, again, tracking with that little parable he told. Simon was not forgiven little. The, the text clearly shows he had no love for Jesus. His heart was hardened, and there was not even the common courtesy offered to Jesus on entering the house. And then he declares to her, turning away, talking to Simon, now he talks to her, your sins have been forgiven. How many times has he mentioned forgiveness? How important is forgiveness in recognizing that you're a sinner? He continues to talk about forgiveness. She's heard every word he said, but now he declares it to her. So when was she saved? Well, we don't know exactly, but it was before this event. Because again, he's using the perfect passive tense here. It's something in the past that's been done in her, and it's having an effect. Before this party, she had been saved. Maybe she was out listening to Jesus. Maybe she heard him in a field when he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And maybe God did a work in her heart then. We don't know the details, but we see the actions. Now, here's how the Pharisees respond. As they always do to true change in a person's life, those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man? who even forgives sins. They don't see it. They don't have faith. They have no love for Jesus. God has not changed their hearts. So they say, who is this guy? What is he doing saying he forgives her sins? He can't do that. All they do is ask questions, 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 but there's no effort in their life to seek the answers to those questions. And he said to the woman, notice he just ignores what they're saying over here in the corner what they're saying about him. He just ignores their self-righteousness and he addresses her again. Your faith has saved. Perfect tense again. Faith has already saved you in the past. You continue to experience those results in your salvation. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Stop worrying. Stop carrying the guilt around. You're at peace with God. Stop churning it back up in your heart. Her life had been transformed. It's no longer a life of giving her body in sinful lust anymore. She's changed. She's different. She had full forgiveness by her faith in Christ. She could no longer just go on living the way she did. Now she has peace with God. Now she can live a life to God. Good works, even her love for God, that could not save. Good works don't save you. It's Christ who saves. It's faith in Him that saves us. But by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So I want to conclude today by asking, do you truly love Him? Have you embraced Christ as your Savior? Do you love the person of Jesus Christ? Not the world's view of Jesus. Not this nice guy that's somewhere in heaven sort of telling me I can do whatever I want. Do you love the Jesus described in the Bible? If you don't love Him, then you're not a Christian. Christians love Jesus. I'm talking about the love of the biblical Jesus here. Do you love him? 
Do you love the Jesus who says, you're a great sinner in need of a Savior? You can't just love part of Jesus. I like the blessings that Jesus talks about. No, he calls you a sinner. Do you believe it? Because that's the Jesus of the Bible. The Lord and Savior. The one who came to forgive sinners. But he will return someday. He will return to judge. There's only so much time we have. Each of us has so much time to turn to him. That's it. It's over after that. He's the Lord and Savior. Come to him. If you haven't come to him already, come to him. Many of us here know Jesus. Many of us here love him. We look forward to his return. And it's a great joy. It's a great joy to serve him. And being at peace like this woman was. She was at peace. She didn't worry about the judgment. She was at peace with God. She knew she had been forgiven. It reminds me of a great hymn written by Elizabeth Prentice. It's called, More Love to Thee, O Christ. I tend to think she was reading this when she wrote the hymn. One of the verses says, Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Let's give thanks to Christ today for forgiving us and for enabling us to truly love him. Lord, we do thank you, Jesus, for your death, for your resurrection, for your ascension, and all your teachings throughout your ministry that were recorded and then later explained in the epistles. Lord, we thank you for the gospel that without Christ, we're lost. Without Christ, we have nothing. So we love you, Lord. Those of us here who are in Christ, we love you. Let us show it. Let us respond rightly to what's been done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.